the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We've got a lot to cover. Very interesting guests coming up today. Uh, Senator Phil Graham, the uh, former senator from Texas. He's been out of office for 20 years, actually, but he, he's only just uh, just just turned 80 um, so he left office as a young man. I, I didn't re- quite realize that. And he's written a book about how um, messy and uh, and backward and deceptive uh, some of the statistics that are used by the government, especially in the census, uh, what they do to say something about inequality that he says is uh, misleading. We'll talk with him about that. His new book with two other economists. He wrote that. And also very interested to talk with retired Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller of the United States Marine Corps. You may remember him. He's the guy that put out the video uh, when he was um, when he was uh, frustrated with what happened in Afghanistan last year. And he put out a video, basically lost his job as a lieutenant colonel of the Marine Corps because of that. And he's written a book called Crisis of Command, Crisis of Command, uh, how that we lost trust and confidence in America's generals and politicians. We'll talk with Stuart Scheller, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller in a moment. But first, uh, what you need to know today, what you need to know today is it's 1894. It's 1894. Now stick with me because what I've been seeing, and I'm, I'm going a little bit, maybe I'm going a little too far, uh, but I don't know that it's true. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm in the right direction. In 1894, America was in an off-year election. The party in power uh, was the Democrat, Grover Cleveland. So the Democrats were in power. And in 1894, the country was in the throes of what was later called the Panic of 1893. The Panic of 1893 was a horrendous economic depression that struck like every part of American life. Now, remember, it's 1893. We're just in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or not, maybe the middle of it. Um, and we've got the, they call it the Gilded Age because there's been so much economic growth and expansion. That was the 18, I think the 80s, 1880s is the sort of famous uh, time, 1870s, maybe 1880s, the Gilded Age. Lots of growth, lots of rich people. And we're in this period where more and more industrialization has poured people into the cities. And we are now facing this incredible panic of 1893 they call it the panic of 1893 but when you look at it what it really was was just what we're in right now everything about it was higher there had been a crisis in agriculture i think it was in wheat and so there was a shortage of food then there was a problem with inflation then there was a problem with uh, low wages there was lots of work but people were being underpaid and couldn't sort of uh, figure things out there was a problem with silver People had been hoarding silver and trying to, you know, there wasn't the same currency. Um, and so there was a, the idea of, of trying to change the laws to protect that. Anyway, the fact is, and the stock market tanked, banks failed, businesses, I think the number here, I'm looking at it, 500 banks closed, 
This is in 1893. There wasn't that many banks. 15,000 businesses closed. People were losing their farms. Unemployment, this is the one difference from today. Unemployment was up in the 20s in places. But my point here is it was economics. It was economics. It was the way people were living and the depression they were in. And so they went to the polls in 1894 and they punished the party in power. The party in power was the Democrats, and they just pummeled them in ways that nobody expected. Nobody thought that there could be that big a swing, and it was massive. Here's my point. It's 1894. The fundamentals are so clearly off. The media is so desperate to distract us. They want to talk about Trump's documents. They want to talk about abortion. It doesn't matter. It, it may matter in, in 2024 if, if Trump is on the ballot. People may vote against Trump. There's a bunch of people that will do that. But right now, people are not voting. Trump's not on the ballot. They're looking at the cost of gasoline. It's up. You can say, oh, well, it's gone down a little bit in the last three months. It's still way up. Go to the store. Go to the grocery store. If you haven't been in a while, go and look. I, I watch things like bacon. But the bacon that I buy my family is up about 30%. Milk is up. Bread is up. Everything's up. I went to buy two tomatoes and I looked at it closely in the package. It was like $4.80 for two tomatoes. So people see that the the cost of your, uh, if you don't have a fixed mortgage, if you have a second loan, for example, if you have a second mortgage, it's almost always on an adjustable rate. It's going up, up, up. Your home value is stuck now. It's stalled now because you can't get move houses as much. And so we are in a full-blown economic, I don't know, recession for sure. It feels more like a depression. And with Europe on the brink, because they don't have enough fuel, they don't have enough oil and gas, and we're watching the costs of energy go up. They're talking about how to do tr- price caps, try to manage the economy. The, uh, the Central Bank of Europe is going to raise its rates, which is going to ripple across all the, all the economies. So we are in a full-blown economic recession, technically, I would say depression. And I am telling you right now, you are going to see the people of this country absolutely punish the party in power. It's not even going to be close. It's not going to be. And so people are saying now, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is the Republicans are going to win. There's there's polling. Frank Luntz, no fan of Trumpism and America first, and it's sort of insider's insider, has a poll. I think he put it out that uh, 10 days ago, Fetterman was up by 13 in Pennsylvania. Now he's up by three. And they're lying. Fetterman's losing. Oz, you may not like Oz's politics. He's made for this moment. He's a doctor, cardiac, thoracic surgeon. He's done TV. He's a communicator. He's moderate looking on certain issues. He will win by five, seven, ten points. Up in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, who's supposed to be beleaguered, he's he's too Trumpy. He was too far out on COVID and fighting against COVID restrictions. He's up. The, the guy running for governor in Wisconsin, he's up. Down in Georgia, they've stopped reporting. Stacey Abrams is going to lose by double digits. And Herschel Walker is going to win by five, seven, ten points. It's an absolute red tsunami. By the way, it doesn't solve a lot of problems. You still got to get in power and see what the Republicans can do. But they are going to, in the era of lots of information online and lots of understanding what's going on, 
people are going back. They're going back to just simply buying, excuse me, choosing against the powerful, choosing against the incumbent. And that's how they, that's who they associate with power. And if you don't believe me, again, go over to Italy and look at what Maloney did. Georgia Maloney, her choice in the last four years was to either play along with the Italian government, which is very common. You enter the coalition or stay as an outsider, stay as the opposition, the opposition by total contrast. That's what she did. She went from 4% last election up to close to 30% and she'll be prime minister. So in 1894, Republicans won over 100 House seats. They won a a net of 110 House seats. So they won. They picked up 110. In the Senate election, they only won two. They only won two. They only, excuse me, they only picked up two. But it's going to be more than that. It's going to be more than that. A lot more. A lot more. It's going to be a red tsunami. You heard it here first. Call it 1894. Not 1994. Not 2010. 1994 was... 50 years, I think 48 years of Democrats in power in the House. They finally wanted to go with Republicans after uh, the uh, the um, beginning of the Clinton era. And so they went with Newt and the gang. It's not even 2010 where Obama had done the stimulus and wasted money and all the cylinder and all that stuff. And in 2010, they punished him and switched out a lot of people. It's not even that. It's 1894. Go back and look because it's not just a tea party of radical stuff like Obamacare. It's not just 1994, which is, uh, you know, after 12 years of Reagan slash Bush, we got Clinton and we don't like what we see. No, it's more dramatic. And the drama in it is the economy. Uncertainty in the future, a wrong track for the country, economics off. Go look. I hate to tell you, don't do it if you're not strong. Go look at your retirement. I look at mine in just three months. It's down about 25%. I can't stand to look at it. So that's what Americans are feeling. It's 1894, not 1994. Now watch for it. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back. We'll talk with Senator Phil Graham about his new book, as well as Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Be back in a moment. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And our next guest is a former senator uh, from Texas, Phil Graham. We were just talking off the air as we got ready. He, of course, for many, many decades knew Phyllis Schlafly, my late boss, the late Phyllis Schlafly, and uh, she, him. And I remember her telling me about uh, a couple of things about you, Senator. One was you were fearless because you didn't matter who you, if you thought you had something figured out, didn't matter who you were up against, your own side, the other side, whatever. But she also said, uh, I think with a tongue and cheek there are people that are smarter than the rest of the crew in the in the building they're working so welcome to the program senator phil graham how are you sir i'm great ed and thank you and thank you for reminding me of phyllis yeah she was she was great so so senator graham of course from 86 to 2002 a u.s senator but before that a professor and a teacher he's got a new book it's from Ro- roman and littlefield just out a few of uh, 10 days ago it's called the myth of american inequality how government biases policy 
policy debate. So because I'm a Missourian and Phyllis is in my mind, just across the river from her uh, in Alton, Illinois, would, of course, been uh, uh, the home the hometown of Mark Twain. And he is credited with saying lies, damn lies and statistics describing how to bolster weak arguments is what he was saying. So my first question, Senator Graham, is when you tell us that they're lying about uh, the, the statistics in inequality in the policy debate, aren't statistics used to lie all the time? It feels like it. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't get into whether they're lying or not, Ed. The okay. point I'm making is that the Census Bureau, starting in 1947 and remarkably continuing to this day, counts only cash payments as income, does not count taxes at all. So today, when it's calculating household income, it doesn't include two-thirds of all federal, state, and local transfers. Hmm. Uh, It doesn't include refundable tax credits where the Treasury sends you a check. It doesn't include food stamps where uh, you get a debit card that you can go buy groceries with. It doesn't include Medicare where the government pays your health care bills. It doesn't include a hundred other federal, state, and local programs uh, that uh, together uh, make up uh, $1.9 trillion worth of transfer payments. Secondly, it doesn't include taxes. So uh, the uh, household income figure is used to calculate poverty. The poverty rate, it's used to calculate income inequality. And we find that when you count all transfer payments as income to the recipients and right. you count all taxes paid as income lost to the people that paid the taxes, that the poverty rate is not 12 percent, but 3 percent, and that uh, inequality uh, as the ratio of the top quintile of earners to the bottom is not 16.7 to 1 as the census claims, but only 4 to 1. And finally, do you hear all of this stuff about The Economist magazine says it is uh, universally accepted that inequality is high and rising. Bernie Sanders says it's obscene. Right, right, right. Sustainable. Well, we find when you count all transfer payments and taxes that income inequality is lower today than it was in 1947. So we're, we're talking again with uh, former Senator Phil Graham, and I alluded to the fact that he taught economics uh, before he was uh, in politics at Texas A&M University. I should mention his two co-authors on this uh, book, uh, Robert Eklund and John Early. Again, the book is uh, from Roman and Littlefield, uh, The Myth of American Inequality. Um, you know, I, funny, this is a timing of this. I got your book, uh, plowing through it, and then someone put me on to Taibbi. I don't know if you were aware of Matt Taibbi's name. He was he, he writes sort of uh, screedishly, but very well. And he's got a book called Divide, American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap. And the problem is what he does is he tells stories. And so the stories are about the bad guys and the bad guys are always the 
rich guys. And when you read it, you're like buffeted along and you're like, wow, this is a good story. Tell me about tell me about that guy who sounds like a jerk. And then tell me about a poor person who sounds like they're 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 saintly. Right. It's St. Francis or, you know, or it's uh, I don't know, the Medici's or something. But but my problem here is. The media, you, you know, you talk about how the government, in this case, the census uh, misuses or, or, or spins the thing in a way. The, the, what do we do in a world where uh, big tech and big media, all they want to do is tell us a narrative that is against our system? Well, I think we've got to get the facts straight. Right. That's what this book is about. Uh, this book basically makes the point that inequality is only about a quarter of what it's claimed to be, that the poverty rate has fallen virtually to zero, except for people that have fallen through the cracks because of mental illness and drug addiction, and they're not being reached by the billions of dollars we're pumping into these programs. That inequality is not rising. It's actually slightly lower than it was 70 years ago, that uh, opportunity is alive and well in America, that 93 percent of the children that grow up in poor households as adults live in uh, households that have higher income, and 62 percent of them rise to higher income quintiles, including 6.1 percent that go to the top. Uh, we look at super rich, uh, basically showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that they pay their taxes. Mm-hmm. And we make the point that liberals talk as if all we need to do is tax the super rich and we can afford whatever government wants. We show if you took every penny of the mega rich in the country, you couldn't fund the government for a week. (laughs) Uh, If you took every penny of the income of the top earner out of every 100 earners in America, top 1%, you couldn't fund government for two months. Hmm. And of course, they're not going to let you take all of it. Right, right. But the point is, this idea that we can get rich people to pay for all these things, they're not enough rich people. And it's not a surprise that the tax burden falls on middle and upper middle income people because, as Willie Sutton said and Robin, the bank, <laughs> right. The money is. right, right, top ten percent of American earners pay a larger share of the tax burden than the top ten percent of earners in any other country in the world, and the bottom ninety percent in America pay less than any other country in the world. All right. So Senator Phil Graham, again, is our guest. The book is The Myth of, Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. And you, there, as you say, if we got to get the facts to try to counter the narrative, this is this is this book does it now. But but even the title, OK, The Myth of American Inequality. I was going to ask you, Senator Graham, you, you've lived through the period of our post-World War II history. You were just a boy uh, coming out of World War II. And I've often talked to the late Phyllis 
Schlafly about this, that in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there became, I, I called it the myth of the American dream, up from your bootstraps, Horatio Alger. And although you can look around the world and say there's, you know, the, the, you can look at America and you say, I wish it was better in this way or that way. The rest of the world, there's nothing like America, right? You, If you work hard, if you catch the breaks, if you're whatever, you can make it. Horatio Alger. And, the, and even there's a Horatio Alger society that Norman Vincent Peale started that's full of people that came from nothing in America and, and made it big time, whether it's successful intellectually or money-wise. So my argument is that over time, in the last 25 years, the, the, the media has driven out of our consciousness the Horatio Alger myth. And they've replaced it, now that you use the title, they replace it with a myth of American inequality that somehow from the beginning, even from the beginning, 1619, it's inequality that is the emblem of America. That's our myth. And once you're told you're unequal, that's a pretty crappy myth. You Nobody wants to live up to that. They want a myth where the the the, the, the gods, you know, uh, change the, 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 the water into, you know, in, into land and where, uh, you know, Thomas Edison invents everything. It feels like we're fighting competing myths and we're losing well look we we have the reality the american dream is alive and well so many people become successful and come from nowhere that it's routine neither <laughs> my parents graduated from high school i failed the third seventh and ninth grades in america in the america that i grew up in you can't just fail once you have to do it over and over and over again and if you and when you decide you're going to do it most people are capable of succeeding in america so the facts show that the american dream is alive and well and it's not it wasn't just alive then it's alive now people are succeeding now Poverty has been virtually eliminated, but unfortunately, government has done it by giving people money. Uh, the percentage of work age people in the bottom 20 percent of earners that actually work is now down to 36 hmm. percent. Um, and we're with these new benefits that have been added during the pandemic. We're seeing people in the second and middle income America leave the job market. Yeah. Government benefits. Well, look, if we keep doing this, we can't have everybody riding in the wagon. Somebody's got to pull it. Yeah. yeah. You sound like that's exactly that's, that's the phrase. That's the phrase my wife has used for years. So she says, who's going to pull the who's going to pull the wagon if everybody's climbing in? But I'm running out of time. I want to ask you, Senator Phil. Bill Graham is our guest. Again, uh, I'll put up on social media his book, The New Myth, Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. Different question, though. Um, famously, in your career, you quit the Democrat Party, resigned from office, Congress, and ran again as a Republican because you said you couldn't be in that party. When, and it's extraordinary in the history of, of, of politics as well as, uh, as, well as just, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, the popular culture. I've not covered very much in my mind because a lot of other things, people cover other sort of what look like uh, courageous moves that look not so much like that to me. But but Senator, um, you look around today. You left the Democrat Party for a reason. You said that party over there has more of the values, more of the policies, more of the possibilities. When you look up now, don't you think to yourself, how do these Democrats stay in? They're, 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 why would you stay a Democrat? I mean, you know, practically, it's hard to understand. I guess you just people that are in office as Democrats are so far left now. But it feels like there should be more people walking away from the Democrat Party. 
Well, I think they are, Ed, especially in my state among Hispanics. Uh-huh. Wholesale rejection of the Democrat Party because of its bad policies, its inflation, its assault on people's values, its failure to gain control of the border. Uh, and I resigned from Congress because it was the right thing to do. And it was one of those happy occasions where the right thing was. <laughs> yeah, Another way, but it's interesting when Ronald Reagan called me because people were urging him to tell me not to resign that I was going to lose. Uh, he said, "You know, people have a way of knowing when a man's trying to do what's right." And I think you're doing the right thing, and I think it'll work, and it did. Mm. That's a great story, too. Thank you. That's uh, that's an inspiration there. Well, we will uh, promote the book, Senator Graham. I think it's very helpful that you're out there uh, making your voice heard on this and explaining it, uh, both from your background as a, in politics, but also as a, uh, a professor of economics and uh, and someone I think people uh, gen- genuinely respect. So thanks very much for your time, Senator. If you read this book, you'll know more, and you'll be a more effective advocate for freedom in America. I I agree with you. All right, Senator Phil Graham, thank you very much. God bless you, and we'll uh, talk again soon, I hope. God bless you. Okay, thank you. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. Uh, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, I'll put the interview up on social media and over at phyllisschlafly.com so you can listen to this one or send it to your friends. Be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Been interested. I've been interested to speak with this gentleman for a long time. Probably, well, I mean, more than, way before he has his book. His name is uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. His book is called Crisis of Command, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. Uh, the book is published by Knox uh, Publishing House. And uh, um, we'll talk in a moment about uh, Lieutenant Colonel's uh, service and how he became famous, quote unquote. But first of all, welcome to the program, sir. How are you? I'm good, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking. Well, thank you. Hey, first of all, um, I liked the ending of the book, which is to say my old boss, the late Phyllis Schlafly, said, uh, you got to write a book. And at the end, if you lay it all out, you got to say, where are we going? And so I thought it was very helpful that you uh, you went through specific things that you said, hey, if you're going to do, you're going to make this better. Here's what you could do. I just told you how messed up uh, the military is. But at the very last page, you talk about how um, your ideas of, of what to do are better. And you make this um, this chess move, literally the last, I don't know, 12, 15 lines, chess moves about how what happened. I, I, and you basically when you re- when I read it, I thought, huh, he's basically pointing out, hey, this is how um, things moved from back in August 28th all the way to today. But so did you have a sense in the middle of it that you were sort of moving like this? I mean, you, I don't know if you could have planned the uh, everything that happened. So walk me through that, uh, what you're doing at the end of the book. Yeah, I appreciate this question. Honestly, I haven't gotten this question before. I've always been taught you don't just identify the problem without a solution. And so I really felt the need to explain to the American people the problems with the military. And so I walk them through that with the book. But I have a path forward, very specific things that we can do to get the military back on track. Now, I'm not saying my suggestions are the only answers. There's probably multiple paths you can walk to get us back on track, but the problems are obvious. So the first step is identifying the problem. And then for me, the second step is how can we fix it? And that's what I try to lay out there at the end. 
Um, we're, we're talking again uh, with uh, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stuart Scheller, United States Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I think my listeners always know I refer to my brother. He was a retired. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps, also a little bit older than you. He was he's been out four or five years. But I check with him. I don't think you two cross paths. But um, I, I know I know his life. And I remember him saying once when someone, um, you know, said, uh, I want to go into the Marine Corps. And they said, but I want to do this, this and this and this. And my brother said, the way it goes in the Marine Corps, you you become a Marine, you're going to do what they say. And that's how that goes. That's a whole ethos. So you did almost two decades and you you fought in these wars. You led men, all this stuff to to break from that like you did. It's almost as extraordinary as what you said in my mind, because Marines, that's not what they do. Right. I mean, so how did that come about? I mean, I've read the book and I see how, you know, again, uh, August 26th, uh, 2021, um, you know, in Afghanistan, what went on was beyond anything that anybody's seen. But how'd you get to that point? Yeah, the bottom line is when you're young and you see things that are wrong, you think that there are other smarter people that see the problem but understand why it's not working the way it should because they have some greater understanding than you. Yeah. So my inexperience allowed me to kind of just continue to go through these things that I saw that I thought to be fundamentally wrong. You know, I registered them in my mind. I continued to read and write and think about them. But it really it took me getting to a place of 17 years in the career with all my experiences and education to come to a place where I realized there wasn't someone that understood the system better. I mean, there was people with different experiences uh, and different thought processes, but I knew that the Afghanistan evacuation was the perfect punctuation on just a long list of mistakes and failures. And what really bothered me was that we didn't address failure in a timely and honest assessment of it after the fact that I thought service members deserved. And so when I got to that place, I decided I needed to make a statement because no one else would. Again, we're talking, uh, the book is really interesting. Crisis of Command, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Again, lots of details on what happened in his career, and uh, but also where to go at the end, a very important part of that last chapter. Um, so, uh, Colonel, the um, when you... When you made that statement, um, the video, a lot of us saw it and we're like, wow, that guy's speaking the truth. Got a lot of positive attention, but it whipped back fast, right? I mean, and you in the book, you refer, you, you knew it was coming, but that doesn't mean you knew what it would be like. In other words, um, because it really whipped back. And I, I did notice, by the way, one thing, and you mentioned that you were not so close with your parents uh, over the, the almost two decades in the Marine Corps, but they stepped up to support you and be in this crazy time. But it whipped back against you like nothing I've seen. I mean, un- partly the, the, the reality of the politics of today and social media, it, it was wild and fast. A hundred percent. I mean, you made the comment in the first question that I couldn't have seen everything that was coming. There's no way. So you have uh, an understanding of the system and there were things that I was, you know, applying pressure on the system to force an overreaction, but there's no way I could predict everything that happened. And it was almost, you know, you, you assess it each time and you continue to make decisions based on the reality as you observe it. But, you know, I, I didn't expect the weight of everything coming down on me. I mean, there was, the military was working with media publications to, to try and discredit me while keeping me under a gag order. I mean, it was it was pretty wild experience for sure. Uh, the book, again, is Crisis of Command. Um, it, it, I had to say, do you regret it? No, I mean, I, I absolutely don't regret it. Now, 
if you ask me if there's things that I would have done differently, absolutely. Like when you're in a fight, there's no way you right. can execute perfectly. Right. So I was trying to do what I thought was right, but there was a lot of pressure and I stumbled, but I, I continue to stumble forward. So if the base question is, do you regret making a true comment that came at great cost, but you knew that in the beginning that it would come at a cost and you did it anyway because you thought it was important enough for the system. You know, I stand by that. And that's why I continue to make statements because after I made that first statement, I probably still could have stayed in the military and gotten my retirement had I apologized and walked back from my comments. And I just decided that they were important enough that I was going to stand by them and continue to apply pressure on the system. And that's what I did. Uh, uh, again, uh, the author is Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stuart Scheller, A Crisis of Command. Okay, so uh, back uh, one within the book, we're, we're talking about something else. And, I, and not, it's not my brother that I, I, I think of when I talk about this. I got another friend that was a, uh, is a retired Marine who talked about how, um, you know, the pressure to change – uh, the Marine Corps and the military from, you know, what it had been. And, you know, not not all progress is bad. I'm not, I'm not sitting here as being some sort of maniac, but um, to change from what they were, you know, and to change the military from being a, you know, a, a military superiority where we knew we could get everybody when we needed to and, and our allies would depend on us and our enemies would fear us into a social services agency that was achieving other social goods and all that. How bad did that uh, how bad did that play into? I mean, the failure you're on the suicide bombing and the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which when you read the book, you're like, he, he felt that you can hear it and you can read it and feel it. But also you allude to how the military's changed so quickly. And, and it's not the politicization, politicization of the military. I think it's, oh, there's always been politics and military. It's this wokeness. Yeah. So I define wokeness as placing social initiatives over the priorities of the organization. And so in the military, the the goal of the organization is to inflict violence at a time and place of our choosing to compel a foreign adversary to do whatever it is we want them to do. That's what the military exists to do. And so is there social initiatives injected into the organization that mitigate or come at the cost of warfighting capability. Yes, that's I don't think you can argue that. Now, you know, is the problem wokeism? No, I think the problem is senior leaders that lack moral courage. So any politician that has an initiative of the day that can inject them into the military without any pushback from our professional leaders that should be advocating for the priorities of the organization, which is warfighting. They're not doing that right now. They're doing whatever the political initiative of the day is. So in the last, you know, Obama and Biden administration, in many ways, it came down to social initiatives. I mean, they outwardly stated that I'm not saying anything that they haven't publicly stated that they wanted to make the military a very inclusive organization. Um, and they and at no point did they ever say they wanted to make it the most lethal warfighting organization. And so that came at a cost. And so my bigger concern is having senior military leaders in moments where we need them to stand for American values, where we need them to stand for the priorities of what the military should stand for. And I just don't see that across the board. Again, uh, we're talking uh, with uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, United States Marine Corps. The book is Crisis of Command, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. It's a it's a quick it's a quick read because it's you, you, you feel like you're in the middle of it with you. It's only it's only been one year, a little bit more than a year since it happened. But as I mentioned, I recommend the last uh, chapter uh, plus uh, on what can happen. Uh, by the way, Knox Press and uh, Permuted Press both published it. PermutedPress.com. Anywhere you buy books, uh, you can find it. Hey, um. Uh, Colonel, I noticed that you have three sons. Um, would you recommend to your sons that they go into Marine Corps? 
You know, that's a tough question. People, not just my sons, but people reach out to me all the time and ask if their child should go into the military. What I'll offer to you right now is the military, the United States military has the best training facilities across the nation. They have the best young talent in terms of junior enlisted and company grade officers. They have one of the highest budgets. I mean, $750 billion a year for a DOD budget is larger than some countries' GDP. The problem with the military that I try to illustrate in the book is leadership. And it's this drifting from what the idealistic reasons they came into to people pleasing. And so I think if we have a a leader that comes in and cleans up the leadership, then the culture and everything will fall into place. So should a young person go into the military? I would submit that that's an individual decision. If one of my sons wanted to go into the military, I would just sit him down and make sure he understands what the military is right now. It's a bureaucracy and it's not necessarily all the things that you see in the movie. But if you understand the problem, um, you know, we'd still need good people to go in the military. So I would submit it's an individual decision, but I wouldn't make any decision until you understand all the problems. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stuart Schellers, our guest, a retired Marine Corps uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. What are you doing now? I mean, in the book you mentioned, and and it was one of the one of the more courageous aspects. And and my Marine friends and brother recognized that you you could have kept your kept your head down and coasted and you didn't. You put your head up and, and, and fought. And that's, you know, at some cost to your retirement kind of things. What are you doing now? Right now, I'm really promoting the book. So I've okay. got book signings going out until the holiday season. So it really, who do I want to be when I grow up, won't start until <laughs> January 23. Okay. And, uh, I haven't figured it out. There's a lot of push to get me into politics. I haven't decided that that's what I want. I don't want to be a politician, but at the same time, I don't like the lack of courage that we have in our current politicians, right? So that's kind of my internal struggle. So I'll, I'll, I'll get some time to figure it out. Very good. Well, uh, keep us in the loop and we'll have you back on again as you're going through this process. I know uh, uh, selling a book is uh, is a challenge, but, uh, you know, telling your story is at the heart of what you're doing. So I uh, appreciate it. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, retired uh, United States Marine Corps. Crisis of Command is the book. We'll put it up on social media. Thank you, sir, for your time. God bless you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, we'll take a break, everybody. Come back. I'll put it up on social media and a link to purchase the book up there, too. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, the conservative pro-family broadcast of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a leading voice for the sanctity of life, traditional education, the Constitution, and American sovereignty. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Every year, parents are shocked by what their children are taught in public schools. Many high school students have been misinformed about our Constitution and founding fathers. Liberal educators have been known to omit important topics to suit their own agenda. However, California parents are more worried about what will not be omitted in the classroom this fall. The California Board of Education has approved curriculum changes that will highlight so-called LGBT history. What's even more shocking is these lessons will start as early as the second grade. Public schools should not be places where liberals can indoctrinate young people with their personal biases. Schools should be where young people are given the tools they need to form their own opinions on issues. Political correctness leaves room for only one side to be presented. 
Parents should not trust educators who claim the schools can teach the LGBT agenda without cutting other important things. Those same educators also claim there's no time to study our Constitution. The biggest problem of this California curriculum change is that it removes power from parents. Mothers and fathers should be the ones to decide when their children can learn about these issues. And most parents would agree that second grade is far too young. Parents should have the right to make decisions about their children's education. Unfortunately, liberal activists do not care about the rights of parents or children. This is only one example of how the radical gay rights movement ultimately wants to undermine the American family. The traditional family unit is the foundation of American society and should be supported in every way possible. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, we got no time. No time. So let's just say goodbye. Have a great weekend. It is uh, the weekend of Noah Dingley, our great producer's wedding. So I'll be thinking of him and his wife and their family. Uh, we wish them all the best in their life. Tammy and Noah, God bless you. And have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back Monday. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you next. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.